Oh yeah, we're sponsored by uh, sponsored by Whole Herbs Green Vein Malay Kratom. 150 grams in 250 capsules, natural, non-GMO, and organic. Street Fight for a while was sending out Kratom to its patrons. To its patrons, that's nice. All right, cool. So, yeah, let's get started. Okay, so, as we all know, last night the Phillies did the impossible. Damn. They completed a four-game sweep of the Houston Astros. They hadn't lost a game prior the entire postseason. And then, you know, just right off uh, game one, Verlander shellacked in the first inning, knocked out after only getting one out, and then it was off to the races for the Phillies, winning the next three games. And then the incredible thing that really, you know, is horrifying to me as a Mets fan, but you got to hand it to him, Noah Syndergaard, winning game four with a complete game, no hitter, shutout, to become the World Series MVP. And when they interviewed him after the game, he didn't say the typical, I'm going to Disneyland or anything like that. He said he wanted to thank uh, our guest today, or actually the, the ex-wife of our guest today, uh, for giving him his one joke. And that one, that little bit of humor allowed him to be the champion he is today. So thanks for joining us, Richard Staff. What are your uh, initial reactions to the... Uh, Syndergaard and the Phillies triumph it's it's not something I wanted to see but you can't argue with their greatness and with the performance Syndergaard put up I think he deserves all the rings that either he steals from me or pitches to himself I don't know is he a friend of yours or is he more of a frenemy how how do you how would you characterize this relationship between you and uh, former Mets pitcher now Phillies pitcher Noah Syndergaard I think it's very antagonistic like whenever things aren't going well for him, I serve as like the punching bag. And frankly, I think I should get a maybe a little bit of jersey sales or a salary or something. But uh, yeah, I'm pretty much there for him to call a divorced weirdo when he gives up three runs to the Marlins. Wow. How did this uh, abusive relationship start between you two? Uh it was sort of my doing, but mostly him being uh, almost as much of a brain poison freak as the rest of us, because I said something. He was doing a Q&A on the tarmac in Syracuse, which in a very Metsian way, when they first got the Syracuse minor league team, they took all the players out of Florida and they said, we're going to go to Syracuse for like a day before the season starts. There ended up being a delay and they were stuck on the runway. He was doing a Q and a, and all the questions were like, Oh, Noah, how do you throw your fastball? And they were all very boring. So I asked him if he thought my wife was going to come back and he said (laughs) doubtful. And that was about it for almost two years and then it popped up again when he was fighting with trevor bauer on twitter and he challenged him to something and he said he would meet him somewhere and bauer said oh that's a date and i replied to bauer saying but wait a minute he isn't even your agent and syndergaard retaining that information for two years said Something like, oh, that was a good one, but your wife is still with me. Mm-hmm. Oh, 
Damn. That was like the only interesting question any journalist had ever asked him, and he, he kept it under his hat. Yeah, he's been waiting all this time for someone to ask something other than, why did they call you Thor? Um, so for those who don't know, I don't, I don't, Sean doesn't know what we're talking about. I don't really know Most what. of our listeners probably don't know what we're talking about. Richard Staff is a uh, writer for Defector. You write for anyone else besides Defector? I do some freelance at Defector, and uh, I guess my main home is Amazing Avenue, which is another collection of Mets freaks that just sort of write what they have to complain about. Right. So, uh, but you're probably most famous for being one of the lovable jesters of Mets Twitter. And often your jokes are relatively leftist, poking fun at some of the Trumpist players on the Mets and other teams. So, like, you know, even though you're sort of just part of the normal or the, I should say, the weird left Twitter world like us, um, you, because you've become so recognizable in Mets Twitter, I think all Mets fans probably know who you are to some extent, which must be kind of weird. Yeah, it's especially once like writers and figures around the team started following me, it got to a point where I'm like, these people shouldn't have to know who I am. <laughs> like, Ron Darling, please call your Mets games. You you don't need to know me. Yeah, <laughs> You suffer enough watching them. You don't have to hear what I have to say, too. It's rare that he went on a date with Madonna in the 80s. That's pretty badass. That's what happens when you're on the cover of GQ. Him and, uh, oh, who's the other person Madonna dated? A-Rod? Yeah, him and A-Rod are Eskimo right. brothers. Yeah, that happened. Little Mets-Yankees rivalry there over uh, Madonna. <laughs> but I wanted to ask, and I, you know, this is an insurrectionary communist podcast, so if you don't want to answer this question, if you believe in security culture, I totally understand, but uh, I want to ask, who are you really? Because... At first, when I saw, like, you and the Noah Syndergaard joke going back and forth, I thought it was just, like, you were some, someone in the Mets press pool or someone, like, in the Mets front of house who was just, you know, anonymously joking around with Syndergaard. Uh, who are you really? Yeah, uh, I've had a lot of people be accused of being me from uh, Mets writers to entire websites to, at one point, even a Mets minor leaguer. Someone asked them, they're like, are you Richard Staff? And they're like, God, no, no. Why would you think that? They're like, oh, I just had a suspicion. But uh, truthfully, I am basically what you see on Twitter. Just uh, a weird guy who watches too much of the Mets and too much of our country and realizes the awful flaws in both of them. Mm. And I'm like the internet clown playing as the Titanic sinks for the most part, <laughs> which it, it isn't very interesting, but it is the answer. Yeah, so uh, for listeners who really don't know or care what we're talking about, we are going to try to connect these things of sports and politics. And I think a, a really good way to understand sports, especially in America, is baseball. And the best way to understand baseball is the Mets. So we're not going to just talk about the Mets, but we're going to try to draw some connections between baseball as it exists today and, and br the broader class struggle. Yeah. Yeah. I, speaking of the class struggle, I gave up on my childhood sports team called the New York Yankees uh, about seven, eight years ago because I just couldn't in good conscience support them anymore. Andy here a few years ago tried to convince me to become a Mets fan. Uh, which was very difficult for me, a little problematic when it comes to my family. 
So I don't know. I'm I'm kind of in between teams right now. You know, I I I, I have a lot of respect for the 1980s Yankees that sucked almost as hard as the New York Mets. But the evil empire, man, I just I can't get on board with it. And I also, I mean, where do you start? You know, beginning to love a new team, right? You know, how do you how do you begin that process, that journey? Well, you just say, "Let's go Mets." I mean, I could say it right yeah, now. Yeah. What if I said it right now? Say it uh, on do the it, podcast. Yeah, you can say it with, with us. Richard, the three of us will say it together. Richard, should All I right? say it? You should say it. Count down. Okay. Three. Well, no, no. Have the two. guest have the guest count. Down. Okay. All right. Three, two, one. Let's go, Matt. I couldn't Matt. do it. You couldn't do I it. Couldn't do we did it on Twitch <laughs> once, but you were you were yeah, drunk or something. I was probably drunk. No, no. Try it again. Try it All again. Right. Okay. All right. Three, two, one. Let's, Let's go, Matt. Matt. <laughs> All right. We're, we'll work on it. We've got the whole winter. We'll do spring training. Well, my my family baseball history is is kind of tortured. I must say. I don't know if you guys are interested in. Oh, you can go for it. Okay, I'm well, interested. there was a team called the we Dodgers. Yeah, there's the, a the team called the Brooklyn Dodgers that left the city. You guys all know about it. Led to the Mets being formed. But my family were Dodgers and Giants fans. And actually, my grandfather, who had the most influence on us baseball-wise, actually went from a Dodgers fan to a Giants fan uh, when Leo DeRocha went from one to the other. Uh, Giants and Dodgers both left. My family all became Mets fans, except for my father, who only became a Yankee fan to say fuck you to his dad. So, you know, I think it's pretty appropriate at this point in time that I've now left Yankee fandom. And uh, I guess mm-hmm. I'm a free agent, oh, I, although I did just say let's go Mets. So maybe right. it's official. You did. That That is on tape. We that, do yeah. have that recorded. Um, and, you know, the Dodgers and the I'm going to try not to nerd too much about the Mets. But there's two quick things I want to say. First is that the Mets were a combination of the Dodgers and the Giants because they both left the same year in uh, 57, I think. Uh, And they left because Robert Moses trying to get, uh, especially the Dodgers, but also the Giants, to play in a a stadium in Flushing that would help, because Flushing was just like Valley of Ashes or whatever. from the Great Gats. Right. Um, No one was living there. So Moses wanted to build a stadium as a way of building a whole new neighborhood in that area, including highways and projects and the World's Fair and all that stuff. Basically, the Dodgers and the Giants owners wanted to own the stadium, but he wanted to be a more of a municipal project. So they had this game of chicken where the two teams left. They were my heroes. They beat the Yankees. 1955. I loved them. Everybody loved them. Then you started hearing rumors, ugly rumors. And then they become uglier facts. Walter O'Malley's going to move the Dodgers. What for? For money. I cried. Broke my heart. Baseball died for me. And then for the next few years, he basically did the same thing with Major League Baseball, saying, you have to let me have a new expansion team in Queens, or I'm going to start my own league. (laughs) And Major League Baseball said, yeah, we're not going to do that. We don't believe in that. And then he started doing it, and baseball finally said, okay, uh, fine, you can have the team. And that's, that was how the, the horrible hybrid that is the New yeah. York Mets was born, with the Dodgers blue and the Giants orange. Robert Moses was trying to do sewer socialism, mm-hmm. and the capitalists at Major League Baseball just wouldn't let him. Or the capitalists at the Dodgers and the Giants wouldn't let him. 
It's a sad story. That was the decline of socialism in the United States. If Robert Moses had gotten a municipal stadium together, you know, we might not be having this podcast. We'd be off like doing hobbies <laughs> or running errands or whatever. And Richard, you wrote for Defector a really great article about how Richard Nixon was actually involved in this, too. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. At, at first, it was an idea of like these just two parallel, awful creatures just like slithering their way through the back end of the 20th century. But as I sort of looked deeper, I realized he was a fan. And then I contacted the Nixon Museum Mm -hmm. and they had a whole bunch of artifacts. And one of them was uh, a letter sent from William Shea, who uh, in Robert Moses's uh, Continental League that they were going to make, he was one of the spokespeople for it. And he had a whole group behind him that included, like, the Bush family and Joan Payson, who'd go on to own the Mets. And there's no letter going out, but there's one coming in that says, on behalf of the Continental League, we'd like to thank you, Vice President Nixon, for speaking to Major League Baseball and getting us these meetings and being that last bit of legitimacy we needed to prove that we're actually serious about this. And from those meetings, the Continental League shut down and Robert Moses, the Bush family, William Shea, they were gifted uh, Richard Nixon's foulest creation of the New York Mets. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What I really liked about the article is that he gets removed from office or he quits right before being impeached and then uh, moves to New York Basically, the article makes it seem like he moved to New York to become a Mets fan. So I just love this idea (laughs) of him being this huge punchline political loser. He just settles into that natural role of sitting behind home plate at Shea Stadium and giving unsolicited advice to all the players who have to listen to him. I need to find the one loser bigger than me right now here in New York. Yeah. Late 70s Nixon is about as loser as you get. Well, I do people. Everyday humans whose behavior conforms with the nature or innate character of normal people suddenly become overwhelmingly devoted to, almost obsessed with a lost cause. It all centers on personal identification. I've been a Mets fan all my life. 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 A mainly unconscious process by which a person formulates a mental image of another person and acts in ways which resemble this image. Pleasure and pain are the main principle involved. You are a loser. Subsequently, you will cheer for a losing team. Another thing I learned in that article that I really liked is that uh, Tom Seaver was uh, something of a, a leftist in, in 1969. It was anti-Vietnam um, War, right? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that. I just assumed that all white baseball players are conservative, you know, yeah. and it's a pretty There's good a, bet. Another player on that team, Ron Swoboda, he, uh, I couldn't get into it because I couldn't find a direct tie, but he went to Vietnam in the 70s as some sort of like morale improvement or whatever, and to this day, 
every single time he brings it up, he calls it the illegal war of Vietnam. Wow. wow and good shit. Jane Fonda style. Yeah, he went on U- yeah. USO, and then there was the picture of him on an anti-aircraft gun yelling, Ho Chi Minh, Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> he didn't go that far, I guess. But um, Last Met story I'll tell for now. We'll, we'll probably do more later. But let's go blank. You know, I read this in a book about the Mets, so maybe this is not true. But Let's Go X, you know, the sports chant, mm-hmm. apparently started with the Mets in 1962 when they started as an expansion team because they were so bad that the people, you know, coming out to see them for the first time, the return of National League Baseball, were like, let's go. <laughs> what are you guys doing? Because they were, you know, they were all like store clerks and yeah, like, yeah. you know, failed journeymen and stuff. They were like the worst team in baseball history. Yeah. They lost 120 Let's games. Oh, bad. And so, yeah, they, they were saying it like that. And then this spirit overtook them. And they mm. started saying it all together at once. Yeah. And it was, this book claims that it was the first baseball chant. And then I read another book, the, uh, the memoir of, I forget his name, but the, the first Mr. Met. Have you ever read that book? I did read a bit about it, but I remember uh, after he died recently, I started reading about the poor guy. Yeah, Dan Riley or Dan O'Reilly, he claims that he started it with his friends. I don't know if that's true, but like just as a fan, he claims he started Let's Go Mets. Why is every awful thing in our society going back <laughs> to the creation of the Mets? Yeah, I mean, that's that's why I, I just love that through line of like the terrible Mets, 62 Mets and Let's Go Brandon. It's yeah. like a direct through line. Direct through line. Right. Yeah. The Mets, he missed the point. These guys were hustling. They were playing. They just didn't know how to play baseball. And that was his basic problem. You see, baseball is an art. And and losing's an art. And you know, the Mets lost 120 games. 120 games. As far as I'm concerned, that makes them giants. Um, all right, 20, 30 minutes, no Mets talk. And then a bunch more Mets talks. Yeah. Okay. Um, they're never too far away. Uh, well, we did definitely want to talk about the uh, major labor victory in baseball this year, which was the unionization of the minor leagues, which was actually just accepted by Major League Baseball. It's Is that a right? Pretty incredible story. They didn't have to strike or anything. I didn't follow it at all. No, it, they. You know, no. it. Uh, there's this great um, Sports Illustrated article. Uh, SI is Sports Illustrated, right? It's just, yeah. It's just called SI. It's just on Staten Nobody Island. A friend of Richard Staff, Emila Bacilieri, wrote it. And uh, she talked to a whole bunch of minor leaguers. And their reaction was almost as stunned as ours. Like, oh, this happened. We didn't have to strike. It didn't take 50 years. And how much it was a whole concerted effort, uh, really in secret, that a lot of guys went through texts or went through emails and slowly but surely they uh, they got their way to actually making this happen, which was nothing more than like, a oh, unionize the minors as a sort of like wish casting. But did they just they managed to make it? Did they go through like the normal National Labor Relations Board's channel? They channels. They did like uh, union cards. They signed them and then had a, a vote on it. Is that how it went down? Yeah. Wow. They sent out the cards and that was when it uh, that was when it leaked. I think the night before that they said the cards had been sent out and uh, I don't remember the exact percentage, but they got it approved and they were recognized by the Major League Baseball Players Association. 
and then more recently major league baseball accepted it without any kicking and screaming that's that's pretty incredible i mean there's in terms of the bargaining unit you know they have a massive precedence that major league baseball has been unionized since what the 1960s when did baseball unionize major leagues actually that i don't know i think it was somewhere in that like 50s 60s range and then it ended up going with kurt flood and he went against the reserve clause so it had to be sometime around there see i think that uh workers out there trying to organize in fast food food franchises like wendy's or mcdonald's should just point to major league baseball and be like that's our precedent for organizing across different workplaces right so each team is like a franchise of you know baseball and they did it so now we can do it too i think I think that I'm going to push this to all my labor lawyer friends. Okay, have, I just I just googled a bit. Yeah, get this. So the first uh, collective bargaining agreement between the players and the MLB owners was in 1968. Okay, there one you of go. the gains of '68, the new wow, left. I tell you. And that, but then the first union was in 1885, when John Montgomery Ward and eight other players formed the first players' union in baseball, the Brotherhood. Of professional ball players. <laughs> Every union of the late 19th century was a brotherhood. I love that. But I wonder if that was inspired by Haymarket. Possibly. Yeah. That, that's a good little, uh, we could do another episode. Let's on. just say that. it was. Yeah, it was Let's a Haymarket thing. They were honoring the Haymarket uh, martyrs. They were arguing for an eight-hour baseball game because games were longer back then. So <laughs> yeah. they were trying to fight for an eight-hour game. 11 game. <laughs> they were 11 hours. Yeah. <clears throat> One cool thing about... Uh, John Montgomery Ward uh, that I know because he's buried here on Long Island is uh, oh you're from Long Island I had also, no idea hey well he died <laughs> here which isn't Montgomery is, is almost as bad as isn't it. Montgomery Ward an old department store in New York am I just making that, that up sounds right. it's also Mr Burns's name so there's a lot going on here who was also a, a baseball tycoon yeah. But uh, he, I think, threw the first ever perfect game. Wow. And I think that was the reason why he had enough pull to actually make that happen. Because he wasn't just some dude. He's like, I, no one in history has done what I've done. So now I'm going to do something else. The other players probably just let him do it to give legitimacy to the cause. Yeah. But yeah, so the, this SI article, is it... it it's great because it tells you, like, really the details of how they organize, but then also why. And, and you know, I had been hearing in the last few years, I think actually I started paying attention to this when, uh, when Sanders kind of championed the cause of uh, more, I guess, the existence of, of minor league baseball because it, it seemed like Major League Baseball wanted to cut a lot of the minor league stadiums, and uh, Sanders saw those stadiums as just important for the economy of, of rural America and small towns. Uh, I think he's passed legislation and continues to try to pass legislation to protect minor league baseball. But then also out of that, just a lot of stories came out about how minor league players live and they mm -hmm. they make very little money and they have to, you know, live in rooms all together like college students. Right, right. And uh, sometimes they have to, you know, pay for their own transportation. And, and so, yeah, they go, they go into it more in the article. But y you hear these stories sometimes like just this season. Uh, I gotta talk about them again. I mean, it's the only team I really know just about. Talk about everything comes back to the Mets, <laughs> man. That's just this episode. Yeah, everything's Mets. good or it's bad. Right. It's always the Mets. Yeah, that's right. Mostly bad, but go. Yeah, so they they had a uh, this guy come in uh, to as a reliever. Maybe you remember his name, but uh, he he did uh, 
he, you know, had a couple good innings and I think got the save or the win or something. And then after the game, he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad I got a chance to do this because uh, last year I was working at a bank and I thought I would never play baseball again. And <laughs> right, right. And um, he wasn't a teller, unfortunately. He was kind of like, you know, working for the bank. You know, uh, in he was like in or finance or some shit. Yeah, but uh, it just tells the story of like, if you're not, even if you're a prospect, even if you're, your career's looking good, kind of just living like the rest of us until you get in the major leagues. They're almost like um, adjuncts nowadays, you know? There's like some small percentage of tenure track jobs for in academia, mm-hmm. and being in the major leagues is the equivalent of that, having like a tenure track position. You finally make what's the minimum $600,000 a year or whatever if you make it into the majors. But then there's just this vast pool of like highly underpaid, completely precarious workers there who are like toiling day in and day out trying to, you know, not just make a living, but also maybe if they're fortunate and talented enough, make it into the point where they can actually like live off of baseball. Mm-hmm. And-, and it's awful because uh, one part of it is that, of course, the guys who are highly drafted, they get bonuses, but that can only carry you so far. But there are a lot of especially either foreign players or just people from poor communities where they could be the next all-star, but you're giving them like enough money to buy two Lunchables a day. And also you sleep in a bed with 10 other people. You know, another thing that kind of makes the, um, the labor conditions of, of baseball players, you know, until they get the big contracts similar to the other American workers is just, a lot of them are from Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, uh, increasingly Venezuela as well. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that scouts go to these places because they know they can get started on these players younger with a lot less money up front. Yeah, and it was uh, a whole, or it still is a whole thing where it's like borderline human trafficking and they have these agreements sort of in the background with people who are or basically kids, they're like 13, 14, and they see that little bit of them, and they decide that, well, you're going to be ours, and we're going to do everything legal or illegal. We're going to bring you over, and then from there, they get their, like, $5 a day, and you're riding buses in the, in the Southwest. Mm. What is the relationship between the teams and the minor leagues? Like, the... Do they they own all the minor league teams, like the major league teams, and they profit uh, off of it. And they they it's a farm system, right? It's not just yeah. Some of them are owned, like of course, going back to the Mets, uh, like their AAA team was uh, for a long time. It was I think in Buffalo, and then it was Las Vegas. But uh, a few years ago, they bought the entire Syracuse uh, AAA team. And they made it theirs. But I think a lot of other teams, especially on the higher end, are like given partnership contracts. Mm-hmm. Or like when Las Vegas separated from the Mets, I think they signed a deal with maybe Oakland to become their new affiliate. And when the Mets bought the Syracuse team, the Washington Nationals had to get an entire new uh, partnership with another team. So they're so like I think owned, some of them are owned, but a yeah. lot is just uh, contracts. They're like it's like some guy just has a baseball team, and then he like kicks up a percentage to have that be the Astros minor league team, basically like a franchise. Yeah, that makes sense. Like uh, 
they're the independent leagues and a lot of the minor league teams that were cut when I think they they cut dozens of them and I think the entire like low A level was just gone but a lot of them went on to become independent league teams because they still had owners and they still had to operate so they latched on wherever they could if there wasn't a spot for them in major league baseball's tree makes sense uh one good uh quote from the the essay article i'll I'll read really fast um this is about uh trevor hildenberger former met but uh he was on i forgot what team he was on when he minnesota yeah he was in the the system for minnesota uh he said um, it took $17 a day from his already meager paychecks. Uh, that's to stay in the twins housing complex in Fort Myers. Um, he was making just $185 every two weeks. Oof. At one point he sat down with teammates to work out what their hourly wage was. They figured it couldn't be more than $2 an hour. The situation did not improve as he moved up through the ranks. At one point, Hildenberger slept in a closet on a pullout couch an entire summer in a cockroach-infested apartment where the breaker tripped every time he and his teammates turned on the oven. They all knew Walmart's return policy by heart. 90 days to get the money uh, for items like an air mattress. Oh, man. That's brutal. Yeah, he, uh, he, I guess he's a friend of mine, and he was in a, a few Twitter DMs, and we'd see, like, the updates. He'd be talking to people, and they'd be... Uh, organizing a little and we always thought like as bad as it is we're always like well it'll probably never happen and with each update he came in with all of a sudden it's like wait a minute this this might actually be something that happens and i definitely think that he is online poisoned and if you ever want like a minor leaguer to reach out to he's the guy to go to like to come on the podcast or anything uh but it was so unlikely, and I think it was – I think he mentions in the article that, yeah, he was a major leaguer, and yeah, he, I think, spent four seasons up. But if there's anything he's going to be remembered for, he's glad that it's being a part of this effort and getting it done finally. Mm. That's beautiful. And you were like, uh, it sounds like you were something of a, a Rasputin whispering in his ear, you know, uh, agitating him yeah. to, to take to take a drastic action. Yeah, whenever we notice he's in, once in a while, we just put uh, pictures of like Rob Manfred with X's over his eyes and just wait for <laughs> it to settle in. Yeah, I, I'm also. I want to ask you about this. Uh, uh, you, you DMing with these baseball players? That's so fascinating. I can. Uh, only assume you've got like a pretty good idea of who the the lefties or down people are in baseball. So we know about uh, Sean Doolittle uh, of the Nationals, who's a member of the DSA and has done stuff for the DSA. Is there anyone else in baseball that's uh, kind of under the radar, a leftist or, or something along those lines, a fellow traveler? There aren't many. I know I'm pretty sure Doolittle is the only one in the major leagues with uh, the DSA. But Lucas Giolito with the White Sox has been... Uh, he's been on the right side of almost every issue and not really what you would expect out of like any major league player because someone like Doolittle is such a, an outlier that 
everyone else sort of seems like, oh, they're sort of like in comparison, but it's not a really large group where uh, I think a lot of them are retired and some go to other countries to play, but uh, I know Brendan McCarthy was pretty outspoken and he was also in Oakland with Doolittle. But uh, yeah, for the most part, it's really not a lot. I'm sure there are some that are very quiet about it, but uh, I think, I forget who it was. Someone was telling me that they made a bet with a friend who works in Major League Baseball and said, uh, over under 10 registered Democrats that I could find on like uh, Open Secrets or whatever the donation website was. And I think they got stuck at nine. (laughs) For the entire Major Leagues? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. So maybe they don't donate under their name or they do it with uh, either one of their spouses. Like I know Jeff McNeil on the Mets, his he was one of the nine, I think, and his wife was a Bernie supporter. Nice. And yeah, so there's some people out there, but it's not as much as you would like. There, there's like, a decent amount of ho- uh, high-profile right-wingers, right? I mean, Kurt Schilling famously oh, yeah. is like a huge right-winger. Who else in the in the majors? Uh, Trevor Bauer, who is now serving a suspension for like 324 games for beating up and I think raping a woman. Oh my god. Uh, yeah, he really liked... Uh, like the epic bacon sort of stuff where he's like, Elon Musk is my favorite person. And also Obama's a Muslim. All right. Uh, you also have uh, Blake Trinan in Los Angeles. Uh, he's one of their relief pitchers. But uh, before like playoff games, a lot of guys would be like, oh, they're in their zone and they're either listening to music or working out. Without fail before every game, if you went to his like, his Instagram, not only did he have Mike Lindell's website in his bio, <laughs> but he'd be like posting stories that are like, oh, sicko president Joe Brandon wants to rape your kids. <laughs> oh, man. And it's like, is this really what you're doing before you pitch? Maybe he really just likes my pillow. Maybe he's just yeah. a huge fan of comfortable uh, pillows designed by a crack smoking psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> One uh, funny thing I, I always bring it up is that uh, when Sean Doolittle was traded to Washington, Blake Trinan was the return. Mm. So he was traded for someone who probably thinks he eats children. <laughs> it's like a, a, a Stalin-Hitler uh, prisoner exchange, those two. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, do you have a, a sense of, like, why so many of, especially the white players in baseball, are evangelicals? You know, they're not all out Trump supporters. Maybe they just donate some money, but... It seems like they're all evangelicals. I think because to follow the path of baseball, you need to have money to do it. Mm. Because you need a bat, you need a glove, you need cleats, you need batting gloves, you need a helmet. And in a lot of these uh, places, there's such an ingrained like training culture where I think Perfect Game, the like scouting website or whatever, they... They do like nine-year-old rankings Damn. around the country. So really, the only people that, or at least on the white side, the only 
real people you have doing this are coming from rich families or just they have the means to stick with it this much. So it's and, like journalism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like paying so, for, you know, not not SAT prep in this case, but paying for like extra training and things of that sort, being able to send your kid to baseball camp over the summer every year. Yeah, that that stuff adds up. Yeah, and uh you get a few who are not psychopaths, but for the most part it's a lot of people who would laugh very hard at a attack helicopter gender joke. Oh, sure, and yeah. That's most of the league. Yeah, I'm I'm just like dreaming wistfully of the time when baseball was just like a bunch of fat dudes drinking beer and eating hot dogs <laughs> on the bench and yeah, just like, like going out there and swinging away at it. Yeah, baseball players were, used plumbers. to be known as like scumbags, like yeah. bad, just you know, jerks. But then the the fucking evangelicals took over. Well, it also yeah. became so and much what, more what corporate. What happened to Mickey Mantle and the guys who would just sort of like work construction in the off season right. and also drink way too much? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, then on the um, the flip side of that, you know, all the money going into you know like a, a, a an evangelical Florida gated community to to incubate baseball players in the Caribbean. One reason that explains why so many uh, Puerto Rican and Dominican uh, players are, are so good. They have player mills, right? Is that what you're going to refer to? Well, uh, one one answer that I found, maybe this is overblown, but kids play this version of baseball with a broomstick and the jug of a uh, of like those big water car- carafes, ah. um, which is much harder than using a bat and a ball. So, uh, and they do this is just such a so it's a version of stickball basically. Yeah, um, played all throughout the Caribbean. And uh, I think in in, uh, in Venezuela and parts of Colombia as well, and and so these kids are just like you know trained at doing something kind of harder than baseball. And then they see a ninety five mile per hour fastball, they're like easy, right? <laughs> it's easy mode. I don't know if that's true. I mean, I heard that uh, in the Caribbean, especially, there's all sorts of like it's like semi child trafficking. Like if you have any sort of uh, proclivity towards baseball, you basically there's like a camp that you go and you live at for like oh. their, your entire childhood, and they basically raise you and train you and all that. That's what, that's, that's the story I heard. I don't know if that's true. Richard. I don't know enough about it to speak like definitively on it, but I know a few years ago, uh, the Braves general manager was banned for, from baseball for life for like doing illegal negotiations. And it's not like he's the only one and they're still very much making agreements with like 15 year olds, but it's definitely, something that they're going to have to do something about sooner or later, but they're sort of kicking the can until like someone gets thrown in prison for it. Maybe the new union in the minor leagues will help with that. Like set some sort of like oversight body to how people are even, even ending up in the United States in these leagues to begin with. Yeah. If nothing else, it can't hurt any more than it already is. I, I, I couldn't help but when we were talking about that before think about uh, when Obama broke the basketball strike. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Ago? I don't think he cares enough about minor league baseball to have broken their strike if they had actually had to strike, but I could just imagine no, him calling like a, them up. A dedicated old man like Bernie who's still mad about the Brooklyn Dodgers. Yes, Bernie. Obama doesn't have that energy. No, I know. I could Bernie. I wonder if Bernie could like Bernie at any point thought about getting in their ears and was like, "Kids, you need to organize a union." 
Mm. Like what they idea. did to my Brooklyn Dodgers. Yeah. You Don't know, let happen to you what they did to my Dodgers. <laughs> uh, that was after Kenosha. And, um, you know, one, I think it's actually back to the Mets. I'm sorry. But my proudest moment as a Mets fan, uh, because I was born in 87, so it's not a lot to choose from. But <laughs> oh, I remember. <laughs> See, I was around. I watched the, the yeah, Mets yeah. win the World Series in 1986 on my parents' television. It was uh, a beautiful thing. Um, God, I wish that was me. <laughs> so I wasn't even a Mets fan, but it was a ba- it was a New York team, so I was super hyped about it. So. You, you were also born post eighty seven, post eighty six. I was born in ninety eight. Wow! Oh damn! Yeah. Insane as that sounds. Jesus Christ! Oh, good for I you, think man. Mike Piazza was a Met before I was even born. Um, so I was gonna say the uh, you know the um, yeah, I was saying that one of the proudest moments uh, as a Mets fan is after Kenosha. Um, they're playing this season, of course, where like nobody was in the stands, but it was, it was Mets versus Marlins. And they did something that, as far as I know, has never been done in baseball. They went out to the field. I think it was the, uh, the Marlins pitcher threw the first pitch, and then both teams simultaneously walked off the field oh, uh, and didn't play the game. Yeah, yeah. And that was organized by Dominic Smith. And all of the Marlins and Mets have come out of their dugouts. Michael Walker takes off his hat, and all the Mets on the field are removing their hats as well. And now after a moment of silence that lasted 42 seconds, the day before we celebrate Jackie Robinson Day, the Mets are exiting the field after both teams exchanged a wave of caps to one another. So it would appear as though after a poignant moment that the Mets and Marlins will not be playing baseball tonight. And a Black Lives Matter shirt left on top of home plate. And there's a little uh, placard for it in, like, the City Field Mets Museum. But it doesn't mention that Dom Smith organized it, which I think is really unfortunate. No, they, they're they very much wanting to get rid of him, so they don't want to keep much of a trace of him there, I guess. Yeah, I hope it's not but, uh, because of that. I don't think so. It's probably but, more because he can't uh, hit anymore. Yeah, but especially in baseball, that is something at the time I was very proud of it because— only three years before, uh, I think Bryce Maxwell or Bruce Maxwell, he was a catcher with uh, the Athletics, and he was the first major league player to kneel during the anthem. Mm. And he was alone in that. Nobody else on his team did it with him, and he was sort of singled out as like, oh, this maniac, he hates America, he hates baseball, mm. and... Uh, I think it like drove him a little bit insane and he ended up being arrested for like threatening a pizza delivery guy with Mm. a gun or something. Damn. But in three years to go from this one guy doing it and being singled out, I think even the president like tweeted about him and called him a nasty guy or whatever. (laughs) But to go from that to a handful of teams actually not playing in their games is a massive step in such a short amount of time. Yeah, of course, a lot of those players now probably think Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, is a hero. (laughs) He did what he had to do. (laughs) But they didn't have uh, all the the same information at the time. Mm -hmm. So they came to the right decision. Well, one guy didn't. I can't think of his. uh, Sam Coonrod. Uh, Unfortunate name, unfortunate Mm -hmm. politics. Uh, At the time, a lot of his teammates on the Giants were 
kneeling, and I think they were one of the teams to walk off. But he said he would not kneel, and he doesn't agree with the walking off because uh, Black Lives Matter wants to abolish the nuclear family mm. and implement Marxism, and that's mm. just something he can't agree with. I wish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we talked about this a little bit on Twitter. Mark Hanna, another Matt, wrote had an interview this year where he's talking about like Pride Day at uh, City Field, and this is something that's spreading throughout baseball, and a lot of players really don't like the idea that they have to wear a, a pride flag on their uniform or, or anything like that. It's, it's always great to get these little peeks inside what the culture is like in the Major League Baseball clubhouses. Because, of course, in interviews, they always just say the same pablum. And this interview, Canna said, yeah, you know, I support LGBTQ people. Fortunately, that is a very uncommon opinion in Major League Baseball clubhouses, those kind of progressive politics. And it reminded me of in the 90s, there was an interview in Maximum Rock and Roll, the punk magazine, with Scott Radinsky, who was a closer for the White Sox at the time. And he was also in like a, I think it was like a straight edge pop punk band called 10 Foot Pole. And he did this interview with MRR and, and they asked him like, so what's it, what's it like in the clubhouse? Do you have any like friends on your team? Any people like punk or like your politics? And he's like... No, they're all jocks. You know, I just, I just, I just treat it like work. I go in, I leave. I do not hang out with them. I mean, you guys played sports in high school, right? Yeah. I, I kind of like, yeah, it's more in middle school because like the yeah. culture when you get to high school becomes more a little bit about uh, <laughs> drinking and the bad things that jocks do when they drink. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, that's just kind of that culture. It's, it's weird to me to, to think about like that sort of high school gym mentality transitioning into like real life, like adult life. That's got to twist you in some sort of ways regardless. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I feel like if you're a professional sports player in general, you're kind of stunted in a weird sort of way. You're in this sort of like little enclosed world. Right. What about you, Richard? Did you play sports at all? Or do you play sports? Uh, I did when I was like same as you, like middle school, and then once it got to the high school stage, it's like, nah, I'm sort of too normal for this. <laughs> One thing you were saying about Marcana is uh, in Major League Baseball, I think this year was the first time ever the Yankees did a Pride Night, and the Texas Rangers still have never done one. Mm -hmm. They've never done like a Pride Month tweet, no Pride Night. And for someone like Mark Canna and I think Taiwan Walker, too, he uh, on Pride Night at City Field, he went into the Mets team store and he put out a tweet and he said there for the next half hour, anyone who buys like a Pride merchandise like Mets logo with a rainbow in it or anything, he'd pay for it. And oh, that's beautiful. It's, yeah, it's still not like a league wide thing, but there's enough little glimmers of hope that you could see a brighter future coming into the picture. But it still might be a ways off. Yeah, and compare that to something the the Yankees bleacher creatures like mm. to do. Maybe you saw this, Sean, oh, when you were a kid. I, I saw a lot there. In the, when uh, I was a kid. <laughs> you can you can look this up on YouTube. It's it's hard to believe. I'm not sure if they do it anymore. I really hope they don't. But in the uh, seventh inning, the Yankees always play YMCA. Uh, all, the, yeah, I know where this is going. <laughs> I saw YMCA. I saw what you're talking. 
And the Bleacher Creatures would uh, had their own version of the song, much like World Owl. They made a parody yeah. of YMCA, real advanced parody, and would <laughs> and would direct it. Stuff. <laughs> they directed it towards you know if there's someone in the stands wearing like a, the hat of an opposing team. Yeah. They change it to "Why are you gay?" Why are you I gay? saw you sucking that D I C K. Yes, and yeah. hundreds of them singing at once. Yeah, and I think they had to put a stop to it once the video started. <laughs> it's like YouTube yeah. came and early, it's like early YouTube. You can't get away with that anymore. Yeah, the the I have a Bleacher story uh, when the Yankees first made the um, the playoffs in 1995. My family and I went. By first, I mean the first time in like 15 years we went, and it was against the Mariners, and there was uh, a guy by the name of the Big Eunuch. Uh, what's his name? Ra- the Big oh, Eunuch. Randy Johnson. Randy Johnson. We <laughs> That's what him, the Yankees call him. The Yankees him, yeah. called him the Big Eunuch, uh-huh. Randy Johnson. Uh, there was Ken Griffey Jr. was out in center field. Uh, we were in the bleachers, and this is before they banned beer from the bleachers, and it wasn't just all sorts of nastiness like that Why Are You Gay song thing. People were just yelling like, hey, Ken Griffey, go suck your mother's dick, you fucking piece of shit. I hate you. You're horrible. Go back to, you know, Seattle. And uh, it got so bad that Ken Go back Griffey- to Seattle is probably the best yeah. thing that they could have said. It, this was the 90s. It was way worse than that. But Ken Griffey Jr. spent the rest of the game, like after the first few innings, with his middle finger out of the back of his glove, <laughs> just flipping the entire crowd off. But then it got worse as people were drinking more. They started throwing batteries oh, um, onto the field. Why ba- Why then, always batteries? Because uh, people had cameras back then. Uh-huh. And then uh, okay. And then this is where it all got really bad. This is kind of a famous game in the lore is uh, Jay Buhner. Do you guys remember that guy? Or was that guy before your time? Jay Buhner. um, Yeah, he he came up to bat and uh, the entire stadium, starting in the bleachers where we were, where we saw a Mariners fan get assaulted and his hat fly (laughs) within like a minute of the game starting. Um, Just a massive chant. Fuck you, Buhner. Just the whole stadium to the point where it was on national TV. It was like a let's go Brandon moment. Uh-huh. Like the announcers were, you know, they were they were trying to like do color commentary for the game, but all you could hear on national team was uh, national TV was fuck you, Buhner. And that right after mm. that is when they banned the drinking and the bleachers. It was a fucking madhouse. Compare that to a Yankee game nowadays, man. That's why I can't be a fan anymore. It was like, I'm not saying I support all that activity, but the Yankees used to be like a working class team. It used to be like rowdy and fun. And they now do a have a lot of, of fun bangers. there at Yankee Stadium. Yeah, yeah. I, it, but I, think I used to have season uh, tickets and they didn't even, when the new stadium came up, me and my brother and my friend had season tickets. They didn't even offer us one, like wow. the same seats. It's just, it was such a fuck you to the fan and then when we try we were going to try to buy them it was going to be like an extra six hundred dollars per season or whatever so that's really when i stopped being a baseball fan in general is because i couldn't just support that corporate bullshit mm. you know i don't think we've ever seen fans like these they're loud they're crude they're obnoxious they yell and scream the yankee fans never would have taken any of that all you see is suits and ties i never like to see a guy where it's tied to the ballpark. He's always worried about spilling something on it. The Mets fans, they don't worry about anything. They screw all over themselves, their neighbors, their wives, all over the stands. Great for business. Now you know the difference between the Yankees and the new breed. We're just getting started here tomorrow. We'll be back in a moment after this and that. Yeah, they still, uh, they still yell at outfielders. I think that was a big reason why the Guardians and Yankees series and the division series was so heated because uh, 
Stephen Kwan, the outfielder for Cleveland. I think he crashed into a wall or something, and uh, and there were fans above him in the outfield that were like screaming at him or whatever. And his teammate in center field, Miles Straw, after the game ended, tried to climb into the seats <laughs> to and, fight like, yell at them. Oh, Hell yeah, yeah. All right, so and there's still a little, so there's life a little out bit there. of that. Yeah, okay. All yeah. Right. But when he got up there, it wasn't like the working class Yankee fan he was face to face with. It was like. Uh, a divorced dentist. <laughs> it, was sort of, it was like, oh, yeah, get out of here. The only guy who could crazy. afford bleacher seats is a yeah. divorced yeah. dentist. An orthodox like guy from Spike and Dival. Yeah. yeah, and barstool sports interns. Right. Were the only yeah. Yeah. Uh, even I, I don't know if I want to say worse, but just as just as creative, let's say, as the Yankees fans back then were the Red Sox fans, because their mm. hate was even pure. It was the purest. You know, the Yankees are, fans are revolting, yeah. but, you know, just being a front runner gives you a certain levity to the whole thing. Sure. But the Red Sox, pre, uh, pre, you know, back in the Curse of the Bambino era, yeah. were really vitriolic, and two, two really funny things I remember that they did um, one was I would read like the uh, this Red Sox like uh, message board. I don't know if it was like a Reddit or something like that. And they had they had a homophobic nickname for everyone on the Yankees. And the best one was for Jason Giambi. Oh, no, can you guess what fat man? Can you what guess was... what Jason Giambi's fat, homoph- fat gay man? I don't know what was it. It was Jason G I M by. Hey, folks. Sean KB here. Uh, just a reminder that our show relies on your support. So if you enjoy what we do and you want to hear more excellent bonus content, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash the Antifada. It's cheap. There's a ton of content and it would mean everything to us. So thank you and we'll see you behind the paywall.